Father, thank you that you are holy and mighty. Thank you that you are above all creation. And yet, thank you that you also choose to relate to us as Father. Not as some distant God that set the world in motion and then disappeared, but as a God who enters into our experience, who smiles upon us and declares his love for us. I pray that you would speak to us today. Holy Spirit, lead us to you, Father. Testify to your love for us as your sons and daughters. And may we just come away knowing that we have an identity that is more beautiful than we could ever possibly imagine. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, all right, you may be seated. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ben, and I am the youth and family pastor here at Crossroads. And uh, I've recently came on staff about a little over six months ago. And actually, about a week after I came on staff here, uh, I had a baby, or my wife gave birth to a baby. Um, <laughs> and uh, her, a baby girl named Evangeline, and we already had a son named Malachi. And we moved here from the Seattle area, and we've loved being here at Crossroads. Everyone's been so welcoming and kind. Uh, and I honestly thank God every day for bringing me here. So I'm, I'm super grateful. Uh, but I won't deny, having a kid and changing locations and starting your job is tiring. It's exhausting, in fact. <laughs> being up at random hours of the night, many random hours of the night, changing multiple poopy diapers, getting frustrated at the lack of sleep, just general exhaustion. But one thing I've learned over the last six months is that no matter how tired I am, how annoyed I am, whenever my baby smiles at me, it makes me happy. <laughs> it's the most beautiful thing in the entire world. I, I don't, there's nothing like the smile of a baby. Their whole face lights up. I was thinking about it. I, the thing that stood out to me most since becoming a dad in terms of their smile is you can see it in their eyes. You don't always see a smile in, in, nor, in adults' eyes. But in a baby's eyes, it's like their entire face just lights up. It's amazing. It's beautiful. And uh, as I was thinking about that, I started um, looking into baby smiles, <laughs> looking it up on Google and stuff. And I came across uh, this study. And this study uh, conducted, I think somewhere in California, by some university, um, they were analyzing what were the goals for baby smiles and how did they like, go about their smiling. And they found, they found that actually the mother's goal and the baby's goal in smiling were actually different. See, when a mother smiles at a baby, they're looking for simul simultaneous smiling. So a mother smiles at the baby and is hoping for the baby to smile back and then she continues smiling so they can smile together and enjoy the smile together. <laughs> but the baby's was different. Not that the baby didn't like smiling, but the baby's number one goal was to maximize the amount of time that the mother would smile at him or her. So they would hold off on smiling sometimes until sort of the last second and then light up so that you could continue smiling at them. Have you ever had that? Sometimes I'll smile at my daughter for a while and it's like, oh man, she's not smiling. And all of a sudden she just lights up and then I keep on smiling. So they were saying that the babies just innately, they begin to strategize on how to best maximize the amount of time their mothers smile at them. And at first, 
I was like, oh, that's pretty cute. Then it hit me. That is incredibly sad. <laughs> right? What is that telling us? That's telling us we are born into this world with a desire to be smiled at, to be loved, to be cherished. And from a young age, we realize that our mother and father cannot fully give us that love we desire. We realize that our moms and dads aren't always there smiling at us. We realize that our moms and dads are sinful. And they don't love us the way we deserve and literally can't smile at them all the time because sometimes I'm sleeping or I'm at work or whatever. <laughs> and so I think that is what Jesus came to heal us from. What some people have called the orphan spirit. It's this innate desire to be known and loved and yet the sense that we've been abandoned, that feeling of rejection and isolation. It's just general disappointment because we smile out at the world and yet we never fully get the smiles back that we so deeply long for. That is an orphan spirit and it is a result of sin and brokenness. The sin and brokenness, brokenness that Jesus came to deliver us from. So let's read Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. I'll have it up on the screen as well. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything, because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is the word of God. So a couple introductory comments. First off, you might notice that this is a little bit different than the Lord's Prayer we pray at the beginning uh, of our service, and that's because that's from Matthew. And Jesus was an itinerant preacher, right? He went around preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. And his sermons probably changed a little bit from here to there. He used a lot of the core ideas, but maybe when he was in one town, he said it slightly differently than another town based on the needs of the people in front of him, right? Because he was preaching to whoever he was in front of. So Luke just probably captured a different time in the ministry of Jesus where he did a, a shorter version of what we say on Sunday mornings, what we call the family prayer, also known as the Lord's Prayer. Second thing, Jesus and his disciples are journeying back to Jerusalem. And Jesus went off to pray. And this was something he did often in the Gospels. But this time he was obviously in earshot because the disciples noticed. 
And one went up to them, went up to Jesus and asked him how to pray. And this in and of itself is not really an unusual request. In fact, often at that time period, rabbis would teach their disciples certain ways and methods of praying. So they're like, hey, John taught his disciples, teach us how to pray. And Jesus gave them a response. Him responding wasn't unusual, but what he says is very unusual. The first thing he says is that we should address God as Father. This was a revolutionary claim. God was called Father a few times in the Old Testament, but it was usually not in reference to him being called, in reference to him being Father, not someone addressing him as Father. It does happen once, addressing God as Father, but even then it's talking about him being the Father of the nation of Israel. Not the Father of you, and not the Father of me. Jesus is making it so much more personal. This was radical to all the people around him, and it's still radical today. In America, I think we've gotten a little bit used um, to the idea that God is a personal God. So it's the truth claim is not that radical, although living in that truth and actually internalizing it and acting as though that's the case, that is radical. But in many parts of the world, the idea is, how can God, the creator of the universe, for whom heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool, who is high and above all things, how can we claim that he is our father. That's a personal term. That's a familial term. That doesn't seem right. In fact, that is the view of many people in the world, especially Muslims. And uh, I grew up among Muslims almost my entire life, up until the past six or seven years. And I remember having these conversations often with my Muslim friends. These conversations about how we viewed God as very personal, someone who I could go to at any time and bring my whole self, the good and the bad, before God and that we addressed him as father, and that was something they really struggled with, and uh, was a a huge reason why they didn't agree with me when it came to Christianity. So I want to read an excerpt from a story. It's a testimony of a a lady called uh, Bilquis Sheikh, and she was a Pakistani lady who converted from Islam to Christianity, and it was a few decades ago. It's from a book called I Dared to Call Him Father. And in this point in the book, she has begun to be, she's been curious about Christianity. She's been curious, she's read a few passages from the New Testament, she's talked to a few Christians, and she's trying to figure out what it all means. And then one day her grandson is sick, so she goes to this Catholic hospital uh, in another town nearby, and she begins to talk to this Catholic nun. And this is the conversation that I'll read to you. Whatever happens, I emphasized, I must find God. This is the lady talking to the nun. But I'm confused about your faith, I said, finally, realizing that even as I spoke, I was putting my finger on something important. You seem to make God so, I don't know, personal. The little nun's eyes filled with compassion, and she leaned forward. Madam Sheikh, she said, her voice full of emotion, there's only one way to find out why we feel this way, and that is to find out for yourself, strange as that may seem. Why don't you pray to the God you are searching for? Ask him to show you his way. Talk to him as if he were your friend. I smiled. She might as well suggest that I talk to the Taj Mahal. But then, Dr. Santiago said something that shot through me like my, shot through my being like electricity. She leaned closer, took my hand in hers, tears streaming down her cheeks. Talk to him, she said very quietly, as if he were your father. I sat back quickly. A dead silence filled the room. Even Mahmoud and Tuni's conversation hung between thoughts. I stared at the nun with the candlelight glinting off her glasses. 
talk to God as if he were my father? The thought shook my soul in the peculiar way truth has of being at once startling and comforting. My mind was on this new way to find God. I went up to my bedroom to consider all that had been happening. Sorry, there's a transition. She, uh, now she's back from the hospital, uh, and uh, she's back home, and so she's trying to figure out how to talk to God's father. I forgot to say that. Okay, so I went up to my bedroom to consider all that had been happening. No Muslim, I felt certain, ever thought of Allah as his father. Since childhood, I had been told that the surest way to know about Allah was to pray five times a day and study and think on the Quran. Yet Dr. Santiago's words came back to me again. Talk to God. Talk to him as if he were your father. Alone in my room, I got on my knees and tried to call him father. But it was a useless effort, and I straightened in dismay. It was ridiculous. Wouldn't it be sinful to try to bring the great one down to our own level? I fell asleep that night, more confused than ever. Hours later, I woke. It was after midnight, my birthday, December 12th. I was 47 years old. I felt a momentary excitement, a carryover from childhood when birthdays were, fest were festivals with string bands on lawns, games, and relatives coming to the house all day. Now, there would be no celebration, perhaps a few phone calls, nothing more. Oh, how I miss those childhood days. I thought of my parents as I like to remember them best. Mother, so loving, so regal and beautiful. And father, I had been so proud of him with his high posts in the Indian government. I could still see him, impeccably dressed, adjusting his turban at the mirror before leaving for his office. The friendly eyes under bushy brows, the gentle smile, the chiseled features, and aquiline nose. One of my cherished memories was seeing him at work in the study. Even in a, in a society where sons were more highly regarded than daughters, father prized his children equally. Often as a little girl, I would have a question to ask him, and I would peek at him from around the door of his office. I was hesitant to interrupt. Then his eye would catch mine. Putting down his pen, he would lean back in his chair and call out, Kicha? Slowly, I would walk into the study, my head down. He would smile and pat the chair next to him. Come, my darling, sit here. Then placing his arm around me, he would draw me to him. Now, my little Kicha, he would ask gently, what can I do for you? It was always the same with father. He didn't mind if I bothered him. Whenever I had a question or problem, no matter how busy he was, he would put aside his work to devote his full attention just to me. It was well past midnight as I lay in bed, savoring this wonderful memory. Oh, thank you, I murmured to God. Wait, was I really talking to him? Suddenly, a break, breakthrough of hope flooded me. Suppose, just suppose, God were like a father. If my earthly father would put aside everything to listen to me, wouldn't my heavenly father? Shaking with excitement, I got out of bed, sank to my knees on the rug, looked up to heaven, and in rich new understanding called God my father. I was not prepared for what happened. Oh, Father, my Father, Father God. Hesitantly, I spoke his name aloud. I tried different ways of speaking to him, and then, as if something broke through for me, I found myself trusting that he was indeed hearing me, just as my earthly father had always done. Father, oh, my Father God, I cried with growing confidence. My voice seemed unusually loud in the large bedroom as I knelt on the rug beside my bed. But suddenly, that room wasn't empty anymore. He was there. I could sense his presence. I could feel his hand lay gently on my head. It was as if I could see his eyes filled with love and compassion. He was so close that I found myself laying, on my, laying my head on his knees like a little girl sitting at her father's feet. For a long time, I knelt there, sobbing quietly, floating in his love. I found myself talking with him, apologizing for not having known him before. And again came his love and compassion, like a warm blanket settling around me. Now I recognize this as the same loving presence I had felt that fragrance-filled afternoon in my garden, the same presence I had often sensed as I read the Bible. 
I am confused, Father, I said. I have to get one thing straight right away. I reached over to the bedside table where I kept the Bible and the Quran side by side. I picked up both books and lifted them, one in each hand. Which, Father, I said, which one is your book? Then a remarkable thing happened. Nothing like it had ever occurred in my life in quite this way. For I heard a voice inside my being, a voice that spoke to me as clearly as if I were repeating words in my inner mind. They were fresh, full of kindness, yet at the same time full of authority. In which book do you meet me as your father? I found myself answering, in the Bible. That's all it took. Now there is no question in my mind which one was his book. Yeah, amen, I agree. (laughs) So I love that story because we see her wrestling with that radical claim that God, creator of the universe, who she calls the great one, who he is, he is the great one, would deign to be called my father and your father. She can't believe it. It's too good to be true. And yet, it is the life-changing truth and message that she needed to hear. So do you know God as father? Do you truly believe deep down inside? Have you internalized that radical claim that the God of the universe has chosen to relate to you, to us, to me, in familial terms? Now, I'm grateful to have grown up in a wonderful family with a very loving father. However, I know for many people that is not the case. And I think Jesus preempts this by his next line and then the examples he gives after the Lord's Prayer. So his next line, he says, Father, then he says, hallowed be your name. Literally, you can translate from the Greek, it's let your name be sanctified or let your name be made holy. A couple things uh, to notice with that phrase, let your name be made holy, let your name be sanctified. First off, we don't really have the same understandings of what names mean as they did back then. Your name was wrapped up in your entire identity. Uh, God would often talk about his name being honored, about his name would go before him. In fact, it sometimes was almost a substitute for his very presence. The name of God would even dwell in the temple um, or in the tabernacle. And uh, you have stories of Old Testament characters who have their identity changed and subsequently their name changed, such as Abram. He was Abram, which means exalted father. Then his name got changed to Abraham when God had given him the covenant that he would become a great nation. And he become, Abraham means father of great multitude. And then there's Jacob, which means deceiver. Then he wrestled with God, and his name changed to Israel, which means wrestles with God. Right? So you, you have that in the Bible, and we can't fully relate to that because it's not as uh, common in our culture. So he's saying, let my name, my identity, who I am, be sanctified. And it's a passive saying. It's not saying, I will sanctify God's name, or you will sanctify God's name. It's saying, let it be sanctified. It's passive in that God will be the one to sanctify his own name. He is the one who will make his own name holy. And what does holy mean? Well, at its root, holy means to be set apart. And that's what God is, right? He is set apart from the rest of creation. He is high and above all things. Heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. He created everything. He is a creator and we are creation, (laughs) So he is separate. He is holy. And what if he's holy, that means that he is not like all the fathers of this world. He can't be tied down and put into a box of all of our understandings of what father means and put God in that box. In fact, I like this quote from one theologian who said, talking about hallowed be your name, he says, it means that God shall be God, that man shall not whittle God down to manageable size and shape. 
I think that's what it's saying. You can't whittle God down to a manageable size and shape. And thank God he is holy, (laughs) or else he would be just like all the fathers of this world. And we would never truly receive the love and the smiles we so deeply crave. And Jesus goes on to give examples of what this looks like, what this looks like. And both of these examples, first the parable, and then the, about the father giving good gifts, they're arguments from least to greatest. So it's an argument from least to greatest. An example of that would be, um, so my wife is in much better shape than I am, and she runs a lot. And I went on a run the other day, and I ran up some hill, and I said, oh yeah, I ran up this hill. You would be fine. You can totally do it. Because the assumption within that is, she's in way better shape than me. If I can do it, surely she can. <laughs> right? So it's an argument from least to greatest. And that's what I think Jesus is doing in the examples after the Lord's Prayer. He's giving arguments from least to greatest. And the first one then being um, the, okay, the friend who comes at midnight. I'll read it one more time. And he said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. You have to remember in this culture, hospitality was everything. It was so important. You would bring a ton of shame upon yourself and your family and people around you if you were not hospitable to guests. So if a friend shows up at midnight needing a place to stay and food to eat, you open up the door and let him in. (laughs) And turns out this guy doesn't have any food. So um, he goes to his friend and says, I have nothing to set before him, and his friend will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. So Jesus is saying at the beginning, can you imagine, and then he, uh, there's a, it's a hypothetical question. Jesus assumes the answer beforehand. Of course you would get up and give your friend bread. Jesus isn't saying this is a debated issue, whether or not you get up and give give your friend bread. The assumption within that culture is that no matter what, if a friend comes to your house asking for bread in the middle of the night, even if you're annoyed, sleepy, and in bed with all your family and kids, you get up and you give him bread. So Jesus assumes that this hospitality will occur. So once again, arguing from least to greatest. If you will do that, then surely God, whenever you come come before him, will give you what you need. And then he goes on to give the example of father giving gifts to children and saying that, you know, if they ask for an egg, they're not going to give them a, a snake or a, a fish, you won't give them a, or opposite. If they ask for a fish, you won't give them a snake or an egg, you won't give them a scorpion. And pretty much saying, no father, or at least most fathers, as much as we try to love God or try to love our kids, we're never going to intentionally try and harm them and give them something evil that could potentially kill them. Because remember, a snake can kill, at least... That's how they viewed all snakes, and I love snakes, so I think they get a bad rap. But, uh, um, but in this story, I think the assumption is you never give them something that's ready to go kill them on purpose. And if you, an earthly father, are like that, how much more your father in heaven? In fact, he finishes this whole list of things by saying, if you then, being evil, which is like, oh, it's a little jarring. Come on, Jesus. Call me evil? Jeez. But really, that's actually good news. It's good news. He's saying, you are sinful. You do not love your kids the way you're supposed to. You do not love your neighbor the way you're supposed to. You don't love God the way you're supposed to. You don't love your friend the way you're supposed to. You are sinful, and yet you would still do this. Surely, God, who is holy and set apart and is the source of all goodness and love, 
will answer you when you come before him. So it's an argument from least to greatest. So I hope you can see from this that Jesus is saying that God is a father. And not only is God father, he is a good father. But you might be like, well, that's great. Jesus says that. But why should I believe that? <laughs> why should I believe that? Well, I think the whole story, the whole message of salvation, the whole, the whole gospel is pointing towards, towards the idea that God is good. Right? Since the foundation of the world, God had determined that he would send his son to die on your behalf. As Philippians chapter 2 says, though he was in the form of God, meaning he was God, he didn't count equality with God, something to be clung to, meaning something I need to hold on to and keep for myself, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human flesh, and then humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. So the God of the universe humbled himself by becoming human, taking on flesh, all the way to the point of dying on a tree for you. Yes, God is good. And here's a quote that I really like by um, sorry, Dorothy Sayers, who's a writer from about 100 years ago, writer and a poet. She's talking about the gospel, and she says, Now, we may call that doctrine exhilarating, or we may call it devastating. We may call it revelation, or we may call it rubbish. But if we call it dull, then words have no meaning at all. That God should play the tyrant over man is a dismal story of unrelieved oppression. That man should play the tyrant over man is the usual dreary record of human futility. But that man should play the tyrant over God and find him a better man than himself is an astonishing drama indeed. Any journalist hearing of it for the first time would recognize it as news. Those who did hear it for the first time actually called it news, and good news at that. Though we are apt to forget that the word gospel ever meant anything so sensational. I love the part where it says, we find that um, we play the tyrant over God. That's right, Acts 2, he says, you crucified him. And he's not just talking about the Jewish people who were listening to him at the time in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 after Pentecost. He's not just talking to them, he's talking to me, he's talking to you. Because of our sins, we crucified the Lord of glory. We crucified the Son of God. And we found him to be a better man than us. To yes, I believe deep down that God is a good, good father because he shows us that in the life of Jesus. As you're reading that passage, Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13, it sort of has a strange ending, right? Like, we think we're just talking about general prayers. And then all of a sudden he says, you, being evil, um, give good gifts to your children. How much more will your, heavenly fa your Father in heaven give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask. And it's like, well, who's talking about the Holy Spirit? <laughs> I'm just talking about general prayer requests here. Well, I think that the Holy Spirit ties back into the very first statement in the prayer, Father. I think Jesus is wrapping up that prayer he had taught us. See, at its root, the Holy Spirit, in terms of what is the Holy Spirit? The most basic understanding, it is God's presence with us. There's many things the Spirit does for us, empowering us, gifts of the Spirit, convicting us, many, many things. But basically, the Holy Spirit is God's presence with us. And Paul, uh, who wrote the book of Romans that Eddie read for us, he says that the Spirit is the sign of our adoption and our inheritance. So this is Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, 
Father. Quick note, uh, Abba is Aramaic for father, and it's more, even more personal, intimate term for father. Aramaic was the language that most of the people probably spoke in Jesus' time. And it's very probable, actually, that when Jesus said the Lord's Prayer, he actually said, Abba. We don't know for certain, but a lot of people think that, and that's why Paul then says, Abba, Father, quoting from Jesus, right? Okay, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So whenever you look at that, the Spirit himself bears bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I think you could translate that, what I underlined is, instead of bears witness with our spirit, it's the spirit himself testifies to, to our spirit that we are children of God. And that makes way more sense to me in terms of just generally theologically. It's not like my spirit, the Holy Spirit get together and, you know, have a little powwow and we're like, all right, yeah, I think we're adopted. We're children of God. I don't think that's what he's saying. And grammatically, it also works. I think he's saying the spirit testifies to our spirit that we are children of God. You see, Going back to our analogy, this desire to be smiled upon eternally. I think the Holy Spirit is God's eternal smile towards his beloved children. The Holy Spirit is God smiling at you forever. When you're sleeping, when you're running away from him, when you're sinning. The Holy Spirit is God's eternal smile for his children. And I don't need to strategize. I don't need to manipulate him into giving me that smile. I don't need to maximize my my smiles and be strategic whenever I give love out in order for him to love me. I simply bask and bathe in the warm and glowing embrace of the Father who loves. Unlike human fathers, this father is not constrained by physicalness, right? Right? He smiles at me whenever, as, as the psalmist says, um, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. No matter where we go, the spirit of God is there. And the spirit of God is smiling upon you because you have turned to God. The Spirit of God is smiling upon you because you are a brother of Jesus, as Hebrews says. And because you are a brother of Jesus, you are a son and daughter of God. And this goes back to uh, this, the passage we read or in Luke 11 where um, you have that parable. And at the end it says impudence, right? Because of his impudence, um, he got up and uh, gave his friend bread. And this story... I have sort of a history with it I'll tell you about in a second. But that word impudence, sometimes it's translated persistent. And people say, if you're just persistent, if you're just persistent, keep on doing it. Finally, God will respond to you. And if you look at it in the larger frame of that story, it's God giving us the Holy Spirit. So I need to be persistent until God gives me the Holy Spirit. Which goes back to these smiling babies, like persistently smiling, just waiting for the Father to smile at us. And so I don't like that translation, persistent. In fact, it makes no sense within the parable because the friend's not persistent. He just shows up and asks for, asks for bread. It's not like it says he knocks a ton, hangs out there, hey, come on out, yells at him, nothing. Just says the guy was annoyed and then got up and gave him bread. And the word itself, actually, in all the literature outside of the New Testament, is translated as shameless. The Greek word is anedeion, shamelessness. So what I think it is, it's a shameless audacity. 
right? It's audacity to go between the Father, the creator of the universe, call him Father, and ask for his presence, for his smile upon us. And we can have that audacity, that shamelessness, only because Jesus is our strong brother. I grew up uh, in a Pentecostal tradition, and I am so grateful for it. Wouldn't exchange it for anything in the world. Uh, I am who I am today, largely because of that. Uh, But one thing they taught was the idea that um, to experience Holy Spirit, you speak in tongues. Um, not for, it's not a salvation issue, just a something to, the empowering presence of the Spirit, you speak in tongues. And uh, not trying to debate that topic right now, but I, uh, but I remember it was a Pentecost Sunday. I can't remember what grade I was in, probably around fourth grade. Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit Sunday, right? And I was ready. I was like, this is going to be the day I'm going to get filled with the Holy Spirit. And I went up and I prayed. People prayed for me. Everyone else was speaking in tongues and receiving the Holy Spirit, at least in the way they were teaching it. And nothing happened to me. And I was so embarrassed. I was ashamed. I thought something was wrong with me. But then I would hear these teachings, you just got to be persistent, and finally you'll receive it. And I kept on going and going. Every time there was an altar call for the Holy Spirit, I would go up there and I was praying for it. Then eventually I gave up. I thought there was something wrong with me. I was seeking that eternal smile and I thought I was being rejected due to something I had done. And that's why I think this is about audacity. You go before the Father. If you ask, he will give it to you. If you seek, you will be found. If you knock, he opens the door and gives you the Holy Spirit. And the Father smiles upon you and declares you to be his son and daughter. And by it, we cry, Abba, Father, as Paul says. How do we know that we've received the Spirit? When we begin to call God Abba, Father. And I love how he says we cry out Abba, Father. He doesn't say we stoically are like, okay, cool, God's Father, all right. No, it's a deep, guttural, primal cry that comes from the baby inside of all of us that wants to be smiled upon. The sense of release, relief and joy at knowing that the Creator has smiled upon us and has never ceased to smile upon us and will never cease to smile upon us because Jesus, because of Jesus' death and resurrection, because God sent His own Son on my behalf to adopt me and you into the family of God. When we cry, Abba, Father, Cries of joy, sobs of relief break forth. So I don't know what's going on in your heart today, but I know that each one of us desires to be eternally smiled upon by a good and gracious Father. It's ingrained within us all, from the moment we're babies until whatever whatever age you are now. We desire to be loved and to be smiled upon by a Father. So maybe you've been strategic in how you present yourself to get more love. Good news is, God loves you no matter what you do. You just turn to him. Maybe you don't think you're lovable. Maybe, like me, you had a lot of shame and felt like you'd done something wrong that prevents God from loving you. Good news, it's not based on anything you do or don't do. It's based solely on what God has done for you. So maybe you had a bad father growing up. Good news is, God the Father is not like your father. He is way better than you can possibly comprehend. And he's waiting for you to turn to him, 
so that he may smile upon you. Like Jesus says, knock and, it will be an- and it, the door will be open for you. In the book of Revelation, he says, behold, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever hears my voice and, listen, whoever hears my voice and listens to my words, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus is standing there, knocking at the door, inviting you, or asking to be invited into your life so that you may be called a son and a daughter of the creator of the universe. So at this point, I would like to invite the worship and prayer team up. We're going to close in a time of singing one more song. There will be people up front to pray with you. So if you want to come up and pray um, for anything going on in your life, just know that you can come to the Father with whatever request, whatever hurt, whatever pain, whatever joy, whatever longing, whatever sadness, you can come to the Father and know that he smiles upon you and he looks at you with joy. Let's pray. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that you are good. Thank you that you are high and above all things, yet have deigned to be called Father, to be called my Father. Thank you that I can come before you in a personal way. Thank you that you are not far away, but you are Emmanuel, God with us. I pray that we would know that truth. That it won't be just something we coldly accept, but that we would internalize it, that we'd cry out to you as Abba, Father. That we would know, Holy Spirit, that you are smiling upon us. Despite any sin we might have in our life, no matter what it is, you took care of it all on the cross. And now we can live in the freedom of knowing that you smile upon us. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Just as a reminder, the volunteer luncheon is after the service. Um, And let's finish with these words, words of God from Zephaniah chapter 3. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart. O daughter of Jerusalem, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel... The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Amen. 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 Amen.